Welcome to our Sunday School lesson. And uh, if you're hearing just the audio and not seeing anyone, you might be like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He heard a voice and saw no man. Eh, probably not. And if you are seeing this, then it's because you're watching this on Sunday evening. And I'm glad you're able to do that. And uh, we're going to continue to do this for a while because it allows uh, those who weren't able to be in Sunday school to keep up with what we're doing. And I'm grateful for that. And I hope you will consider coming to Sunday school. And when you come to Sunday school, consider something else. How long has it been since you brought somebody with you to your class? You enjoy coming and you enjoy being around the people in your class. You probably have a friend. You probably have a relative somebody that you work with, or maybe even a neighbor who could use that same fellowship and uh, let that be a blessing to them. So uh, pray for your teachers, and uh, teachers, pray for your classes, and let's let God use our Sunday school in a great and powerful way, and we'll be unified as we learn truth through the Word of God together. It's a joyful thing and a wonderful thing to uh, be able to present the truth of the Word of God. And thank you, you teachers, for what you do. We really do not take that for granted. Or if we do, we certainly shouldn't. And uh, I just want to say as pastor, thank you very much for the way that you enhance the ministry of our church. Well, we've been looking now uh, for a month at the greatest prayer ever prayed, this uh, prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer uh, the true Lord's Prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ praying this, and uh, the Apostle John writing it down for us as the Holy Spirit caused him to remember it and preserving it for us. And there are some issues and some things that are brought up here that I want to take the time to deal with. I know, again, we've kind of been over these verses, but we're going to pull some things out as they are brought up. And uh, we're going to answer the question, can a Christian ever lose his salvation? Well, of course, we're Baptists, so we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. You know, once saved, always saved. But you know, um, over all of these years of being in the ministry in Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches, I've been amazed at how many people can talk about that and say they believe it, but they have no idea why. I've also been amazed when I was at First Baptist Church of Chelsea, Oklahoma, uh, there was a, a, a lady in there. She was an older lady, probably in her 60s at that time. And I preached um, a series on the security of the believer, the perseverance of the saints, and uh, she came up to me and she goes, I've been going to church for a long time and I've never understood why it is that you can't lose your salvation. Now, come to find out, she was from an Assembly of God background and she had been taught that you could lose your salvation. And for the first time in her Christian life, she had security of knowing that she was kept by the Lord. You see, one of the things that I didn't know growing up, because um, I've been a Baptist even before I was saved, um, most denominations do not believe what we believe as Baptist. I didn't know that. I thought everybody believed this. 
And the thing that we also need to be careful of is we don't look and choose our denomination by what's comfortable for us. Well, I'd rather believe in the security of the believer than not, so I'll be a Baptist instead of being, you know, something else. We don't do that. We have to go by what the Bible teaches and then be in a church that most closely reflects what the Word of God teaches. <coughs> Pardon me. Well, when you uh, think about it, you've heard the five points of Calvinism. Total depravity. Okay, Not everybody is as bad as they can be, but everybody is a sinner. And everything we do is stained and tainted by sin. Unconditional election that God has chose us in him, chosen us in him. Uh, and he's done it according to the good pleasure of his will, not because of anything that he saw in us. Limited atonement that his blood and the atonement that he gave is not just thrown out there for everyone, but very few take advantage of it. It is only applied. It's sufficient for everybody. Don't mistake that. But it is efficient only for the elect. It's applied to believers. Irresistible grace. We're drawn according to, as it says in the book of Hosea, he drew us with cords of love. And Jesus said, no man can come except the Father draw him. That's the irresistible grace of God. And then the P is perseverance of the saints. Now, Southern Baptists started off believing all five points of Calvinism. Every, every, uh, all five points of what I just outlined there. And then um, over time, we kind of got away from that. And we went into five points well, of another system, did you know there was a man named uh, Jacob Arminius? And he had five points. And I'm not going to try to quote them. But um, they said, they ended with that you can fall from grace. Now, for some reason, Southern Baptists kind of took, you know, the four points of Arminianism. And then that last point of Calvinism. Well, our church takes all five points of Calvinism and we reject the uh, Arminian viewpoint on those things because we believe that God calls, we come, and God is the one who keeps us. Um, I was doing a little bit of research on this. And um, it says here, denominations leaning at least in part in the Arminian direction include Methodist, Free Will Baptist, Christian Churches and Churches of Christ, General Baptist, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Church of the Nazarene, the Wesleyan Church, the Salvation Army, Conservative Mennonites, Old Order Mennonites, Amish, Charismatics, including the Pentecostals. Um, now... The reason I say that is because growing up as a Baptist, I didn't really know that we were kind of a minority on those things. Uh, basically, Baptists and Presbyterians, Calvinists, um, are the ones who believe in the perseverance of the saints. That those who are saved are going to persevere to the end. That we are going to be kept by the Lord. I didn't know that. And I just read that because I don't think very many of us understand how few 
believe in the eternal security of the believer or once saved, always saved, some put it, or the perseverance of the saints. And so uh, we've got to understand that doctrine is not by consensus. It's not just, you know, everybody gets together and decides what they want to do and we take a vote on it. It's got to come from the word of God. And so what I want to do is take something that Jesus brings up in John chapter 17. And I want to uh, give you a reason, give you some reasons why we believe that once you are saved, you can never be lost again. That you don't have to fear going to hell. Uh, the first reason would be, is just simply what we've been talking about. The prayer of Jesus secures us. Do you believe Jesus knows how to pray? Do you believe that Jesus prays within the will of God? And do you believe that the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, praying in agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit... Does he ever contradict the will and the word of God? And the answer would be no. And does he, as the perfect son of God, always get his prayer answered? And of course he does. In John 17, 11, he says, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. And so Jesus' prayer lining up with the will of God, with the plan and the purpose of God, uh, I want to just assure you that there's not going to be uh, a scramble in heaven where God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are saying, oh, more got saved than we planned on. Put some more plates out and set the table more. That's not going to happen. But can I also assure you that an all-knowing God is not up in heaven taking away pl uh, plates off of the table. And he's not up there with an eraser taking names out of the book of life. The Bible says that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. So let's say the prayer of Jesus, Jesus praying for the Father to keep us, is uh, one of the reasons we believe that a Christian cannot lose his salvation and go to hell. Okay? Secondly, Jesus' promise secures us. We're going to stay in the book of John, but we're going to back up. Okay, go to the left in your Bible and go to John chapter 10. And we'll read verses 27 through 30. John chapter 10, 27 through 30. Jesus' promise secures us. And here's what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Now, when he says, I know them, he's not just saying, I recognize them or I've seen them somewhere before or I've met them. Uh, this is the same word that you would find for deep, intimate knowledge. Sometimes it's used to speak of the sexual relationship between a man and woman. Uh, it says, and Joseph knew not Mary, his wife, until after Jesus had been born. What did that mean? He didn't know her name. He didn't recognize her. He was introduced to her after Jesus was born. No, we understand that. That uh, he's talking about knowing her sexually. Well, when it says here, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. It's that word that means with deep, intimate, personal knowledge. Okay, I know them. 
and they follow me. Notice how absolute that is. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So when Jesus gives us his promise, notice here we talk about the nature of the sheep. We are known by our shepherd. The shepherd is the one that watches after us. In fact, Jesus tells us the shepherd is the one who gives his life for us. He protects us. And he's also the one that comes after us when we stray. And he says, absolutely, my sheep are known by me. They hear my voice and they follow me. Sheep need that. And that's what we do as his sheep. But it's not just about us. It's the character of the shepherd. Did you see in there what he has said that he is going to do? Did you, did you see in those verses that we read that we are going to be receiving at salvation eternal life? Did you know that you're not just going to get eternal life when you die? It's not as though you breathe your last and then the Lord says, okay, here's your eternal life. Enter into it. He says, I give them eternal life. Not I will give them, not I shall give them, but I give them my sheep right now. I give them eternal life. Did you know the moment that you repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him as Lord, he gave you the gift of eternal life. You say, amen. Isn't that great? What's the big deal about that? Think about it. Think about it. If that life can be lost. If you can sin in such a way that your eternal life is revoked, what's the one thing we know about it? It wasn't eternal. It was a temporary eternal life. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? It can't be temporarily eternal. Eternal is having no beginning and no end. Eternal. It's the life of God. God is the only one who has no beginning and no ending. It's not just an extension of your life now to where you never die. It is eternal. It has no beginning, no ending. What does that mean? God gives you himself. He gives you his life. And he's promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. It's the character of the shepherd. He gives us eternal life. It's also the power of the father. We're not only in the hand of Jesus, but Jesus says we're also in the hand of the father. And guess what? No one is stronger than the father. No one is able to snatch us, to pry us out of the father's hand. You can't jump out either, by the way. And so the power of the father's hands, his father is greater than all. Is that true? And is he really keeping us? And is he holding on to us? And then the unity of the Trinity. You see, there's never any disagreement. The Father is not saying, well, I really want to get rid of them and, and cast them out. But the Son doesn't want to. Or the Son and the Father want to, but the Holy Spirit's not real keen on the idea. No, they're one. And they are unified in their purpose 
and in keeping us and in holding on to us. Jesus, in fact, said that uh, the ones who come to him, he puts it this way, I'll quote the King James, I will in no wise cast out. You know what that means? There are no circumstances present in the universe where he would ever let us go. Well, that's point three, isn't it? The Father's will secures us. Can the Father carry out his will? Is the Father one who says, here's my plan, I hope it works? Is the Father one who says, well, this is what I really want to do, but you wouldn't cooperate or the world wouldn't go along with it or the devil did something? Or is the Father one who is able to accomplish his will? In John chapter 6, 37 through 40, he says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. See, that's irresistible grace. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Well, remember in John 17, Jesus said that we are love gifts from the Father to the Son. And Jesus talks about receiving us and keeping us and how we belong to both the Father and to the Son of God. Well, this is even before John 17. This is, John 17 is nothing new. It's just a reiteration of what he had said before. He's expressing it in a prayer. All that the Father gives me will, will, will come to me. That's a promise. Now look at this. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why, Jesus? Well, he answers it. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what would that be? Oh, glad you ask. He tells us. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's us. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. How many times does he have to say that? That everyone, all, who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Notice how definite all of that is. Notice how it's not saying I hope to or I might or I would like to or it would be a good thing. He says it very clearly. I will. I will raise those that have been given to me by the Father. I will raise all of them up because there are no circumstances present in the universe where I would ever cast them out, no matter how bad. You see... The grace of God means that there's nothing you can do to make Jesus love you any more than he does right now. He loves you with a maximum love. But can I also say there's also nothing you can do to make him love you any less. He just loves you. And that love is always undeserved. You are never worthy of it. I heard a preacher say one time he was getting ready to pray and he says, Oh, Lord. I come to you in Jesus' name, and I know that I'm not worthy to come to you. And then the thought came into his mind, well, when am I ever worthy? 
We're not worthy because we had our quiet time. We're not worthy because we were faithful to church. We're not worthy because we gave tithes and offerings. We're not worthy because we witnessed. We're not worthy because we cut some sin out of our life or we added something into our life. We're never worthy in and of ourselves. Our worthiness is the worthiness of Christ. And that never changes. And the moment that we are saved, Christ comes to live in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the book of Ephesians and other uh, epistles tell us that we are placed in Christ. In other words, I am so much a part of Christ. You are so much a part of Christ that for you to go to hell now having trusted Jesus, for you to go to hell, you would have to be ripped out of Christ. And I would take that to mean, if you go to hell, Jesus has to go with you. You are secure in him. And it is all by grace and it is all through faith. So all come and they are, Jesus said, never cast out. Jesus loses nothing. Nothing slips out of his fingers. Nothing kind of gets lost he knows. He knows you. He knows where you are. And he keeps you. And all are raised up. And the definition of eternal is that it never ends. And all of this is because of the will of God. Let that sink in. And then fourthly, the love of God. The love of God secures us. This is not all just done as a business transaction. This is not all done and uh, God just says, well, I promised, I guess I have to do it. I'd rather not, but I can't get out of it. I'm bound by the contract. Have you ever had a business agreement that maybe uh, you made a deal with somebody and you signed and they signed a contract and then they tried to get out of it and you pulled out the papers and you show it to them and then they say, well, okay, if I can't get out of it, I'll do what I promised to do because I'm legally bound to, but their heart wasn't really in it. You ever had that happen? Have you ever bought something and maybe the person you bought it from or the company, they promised maybe there's a warranty or something like that. And you took it back to them because it wasn't working right and say, I want this fixed. No, we don't really do that. Oh yeah, you have to. And you show them the warranty. And they reluctantly do it because, well, it's written down, so they have to do it. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like maybe God, he doesn't really care that much for you, and he might kind of regret ever saving you, that uh, he might be just a little bit disappointed in you, and of course he would have reason for that as he does for all of us, right? And that God somehow is going, well, if I'd known what I know now, I never would have saved him or her. And then when we die, the Lord says, angel comes up and says, Lord, what are we going to do? And the Lord is saying, well, we're under contract. We made promises. We got to bring them into heaven. Don't much want to, but we really have to. You ever feel like that? Let me assure you, that's not the way it is. God loves you with an everlasting love and you will be welcomed into heaven just like Jesus was, because you were in him and he is in you. Your sins have been paid for, according to the book of Colossians, past, present, 
and future sins. They were all paid for. The handwriting of ordinances, any charge that anybody could bring against you. You know, on a cross when they would execute a criminal. Remember the, uh, the crucifixion of Christ? They put that sign up above his head. You see, typically what they would do is they would write the charges that were brought against those criminals so that anybody was walking by they could point and if they looked to the right of Jesus they would see a man hanging on a cross and they would see a sign that he is a thief they would look on the other side and see he's a thief but they looked at Jesus and said the son of God why because there wasn't any crime Pilate found no fault in him and so when Paul talks about the handwriting of ordinances being wiped out. What was he saying? All of the list of our crimes against God. Our every broken law. Every sin is wiped out by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul put it this way in the book of Romans. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because it's God who justifies and that justification was complete all of your sins are taken care of all of them are gone and you are now given the title deed to heaven because you are an heir of God and get this a joint heir with Jesus you inherit it just like he does man that is mind-boggling that is a mind-boggling thing. Remember that commercial? And that is who you are in Christ. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You have nothing to look forward to in and of yourself but hell and an eternity in hell. But God in his grace, according to the good pleasure of his will, he enthusiastically saved you, embraced you, has given you the forgiveness of sins, indwells you, and is going to take you to heaven. And every time God fulfills a promise to you, he is overjoyed to do it because he gave the promise freely and willingly and enthusiastically. Is that your view of God? That's how the Bible presents it. And you are kept because God loves you and he's not going to let go of someone that he loves so greatly and loves so deeply. Jude, my reference here says chapter 1. That's all there is. But verse 1, Jude 1, 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And you know, when we do our research on that brother of James there, you know who Jude was? You say a brother of James. Yeah. You know who Jude and James were brothers of? The Lord Jesus Christ. This is a guy raised in the same household as the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Um, his name could be Judas, but that wouldn't be proper, would it? So they just drop it and say Jude. And here he is calling himself when he could have kind of pulled rank over everybody. And what does he say? I'm not the brother of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. 
And just in case you want to know, I'll give you a little hint here. I'm the brother of James. That's the guy that in the book of Acts, when they talk about James being the head of the New Testament church, the apostle James had been uh, martyred. This is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Look at the, uh, the letter is addressed to those who are called. Okay, we get that. We're called to salvation. And the next thing, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. We're called because salvation is individual and personal. He didn't just get you with a group and he's stuck with you now. He individually called you. He died for you. And he brought you into the family by his divine purpose. Let, that to make an Episcopalian shout. I mean, that's wonderful, isn't it? And you are not only called, but you are beloved. Beloved. That's an everlasting love. And that is a family love. That's not like, I love hot dogs and I love my grandkids. We have it in English, the same thing. No, 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 no. This is the divine love that he has for his family. It's the maximum love. And what does he do because he loves you? Well, included in that, you're kept. It's a word that means you are guarded. You are secured. What if the devil himself wanted to take you away and he snuck up on you and you didn't see him coming? Because after all, uh, we're told in the scripture that he doesn't look like the devil. He appears as an angel of light. Remember that? What is it that God does when you're not looking, when you're not aware, when you're not careful, when the enemy sneaks up on you? Don't worry about it. He's got your back because you were kept and you were guarded by an all-knowing God who knows what the devil's going to do before the devil even knows what he is going to do. That's the God who watches over you. So we are secured by the love of Christ. So in conclusion, this is not a doctrine that is just concocted by Baptists or Presbyterians. It's something that is clearly taught by Jesus himself. His character as a shepherd is the bottom line for our security. And you are secure in Christ, not as a Baptist, but as a sheep of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let that bless your soul. Let that cause you to rest in him and to know that he loves you. And none of this is done reluctantly but because of his great love and because of his promises that he has given so richly. And that is based upon his character. And all of that is because it is what he has willed to do, what he has decreed to do. And God always keeps his word. You are secure in Christ. Hallelujah. And thank you for taking time to listen to this. And let that bless your heart. For the glory of God. God bless you.